Lord Jesus, I want to thank you that not only is following you and, and being one of your own and walking by faith, not only is that a wonder, but you are wonderful. And we bless your name, the name of Jesus Christ tonight. And we're thankful for you, for who you are. Lord Jesus, for all that you have done, for what you continue to do in our lives and in this world to call people to salvation, to, to make straight a way for people to be in communion with God. I, I thank you for all of that. And I just want to praise your name for that tonight. And I ask, Lord, as we continue in our study through Genesis and in this wonderful book, the Bible, I ask tonight, Holy Spirit, that you please do what I know you desire to do, and that is teach us. I pray that your word would not come back empty, but as you promised, would always come back full, would always come back succeeding in the matter for which you sent it. So I pray, send your word into us tonight, and may it come back full. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Genesis 14. Genesis 14 is a surprising contrast to Genesis 13. In Genesis 13, Abram is the peacemaker. Remember, there's strife between his herdsmen and Lot's herdsmen and Abram by the wisdom of God coming right off the heels of worshiping God. He knows how to make peace. He, he uses the wisdom from above. So Abram's the peacemaker. But in Genesis 14, Abram goes to war. It's very interesting to me. This is the first time we hear of war in the Bible, Genesis 14. So it's a first mention on the long list of first mentions in Genesis, this is the first mention of war. Genesis 14, verse 1, and it came about in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, that they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, and Bersha, king of Gomorrah, and Shinab, king of Adma, and Shemeber, the king of Zeboim, the king of Bela, that is Zoar, that all these came as allies to the valley of Zedim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Chedorlaomer, but the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Chedorlaomer and the kings that were with him came and defeated the Rephaim at Ashtaroth Karnaim, and the Zuzim in Ham, and the Emim in Shaveh Kiriathaim, and the Horites in their Mount Seir, as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. I'm sure you all are tracking this in your <laughs> geographical minds. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and conquered all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who lived in Hazazan Tamar. And the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah and the king of Adma and the king of Zeboim and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, came out, and they arrayed for battle against them in the valley of Sidim, against Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, and Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elisar, four kings against five. This is what happens when the powers go to war. A couple of quick notes as we get into this, and, and I don't want to spend a lot of time because it's really not pertinent to what we're going to talk about and to what really is being shown to us in the text tonight. But a few notes about this war and about these names. First of all, do you remember or recognize any of these names? I don't. I mean, Amraphel, 
Amraphel, well, the famed rabbinical commentator Rashi, or Rashi, claimed that Amraphel, in verses 1 and 9 he's named, was actually Nimrod. Not sure if that works time-wise. Um, others suggest, no, that Amraphel was the warrior king of Babylonia because, of course, he is the king of Shinar, that's Babylon. And others say because of that he was Hammurabi. Hammurabi probably came 15, 20 years after this, if we're looking at history. But it's possible. It could be Hammurabi. But what's interesting is I read these names, and other than having heard them in the Bible last time I was perusing Genesis 14, I don't know any of these guys. So whatever. Note two. We also see in verses 1 and 9 a king named Tidal. He actually was the originator of the wave. So when you go to a sporting event, the title wave. Title king of Goyim. But here's the thing to note. Goyim, does that sound familiar? King of Goyim. What is Goyim? That's the Hebrew word for nations. He's king of the nations. Goyim referring specifically to Gentile nations. And I point that out to say that this king probably was king over several uh, city-states. A number of city-states. But this is the first time now, Genesis 14, in the Hebrew Scriptures, that non-Hebrew names appear before us. These names of these kings are not Hebrew names. And so all of a sudden, what happens? We step beyond the Hebrew, we start to see the nations at work, and what do the nations do? They go to war. We have here what I would call the five kings versus the four kings. The five kings are what... You could call the Cheddar Cheese Coalition because they're led by Cheddar Lamar. So we'll just call them that. Cheddar Cheese Coalition, four kings there uh, from Shinar, Elisar, Elam, and the Goyim. Now, the Goyim, because he's the king of nations, the Goyim, that's thought to refer specifically to the Hittites because the Hittites were spread out wide and were many nations kind of all under one thing. But note that. So from Shinar, Babylon, uh, from Elisar, that's the Chaldees. So that's southern Babylon. That's down in the southern tip of what would be Iraq today. Alam is Persia or, or Iran today. The Goyim, the Hittites, and the Hittites would be in the region actually of Turkey. So what you're seeing here is a coalition of kings north of Israel, east of Israel, southeast, kind of wrapped around the promised land. They're all now coming down. The first battle they have, and I just want to run through this, it was in the region that we would call the Golan Heights today. So the very first battle, let me see where this is, that they, um, 14th year, they came and defeated the Rephaim and Ashtaroth Karnaim. That's the Golan Heights. And then they continue on down. They defeat the Zuzim in Ham, which going on down, Ham is was the region that became Ammon, and Amim became Moab in Shaveh Kiriathim, and the Horites in Mount Seir. Mount Seir is Edom, so Ammon, Moab, Edom, that's Jordan today. So if you're following the track of this, of this attack, they start attacking up in the Golan Heights, and then they make their way through the region that is Jordan today, all the way down to the southern tip of Israel today that's called a lot. They go all the way down to the southern tip of Israel, which is the northern tip of one of the two fingers of the Red Sea, down there, then they turn back north. 
And they begin to attack the nation cities in the valley of Sidim, which is the south end of the Dead Sea. So the big battle, the, the four kings against the five kings, that battle happens in the valley that's right south of the Dead Sea region today, down there in the southern area of Israel. You can look at this and think it all through and, and try and track their, their battles and, and what they conquered. And it, it's all really kind of insignificant. It sounds so impressive. You know, you read the names, Amraphel, Arioch, Chedorlaomer, Tidal, Bera, Bersha, Shanab, Shemeber, and then that king of Bela, which is not named, which is kind of funny to me. He doesn't even get a, you know, a, a shout out there. But all these names, big, impressive names, kings at war, big battles, big political issues of big rebellion and big territory and big tribute, big deal. See, we read it today and it's like, who really cares? The first nine verses is really setting up everything else. It's letting us know there were a bunch of, I could have said to you tonight, a bunch of kings went and fought each other. That's all you need to know. Because we don't know who these guys were. We can track the territory, but again, big deal. The point is that so many things seem so very important on the world stage in the moment. Big political issues, problems between nations, stuff going on right now that, that captivate people in the daily news cycle, but it's over so fast, and then when it's remembered then who cares anymore? Big things, leaders jockeying for power and prominence and position, all so quickly forgotten and completely irrelevant. And it's one of the reasons why I absolutely love the entire context of the birth of the most well-known king in all history. Let me just read it to you. Luke chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Once again, we have big names, big issues, big things going on. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and family of David in order to register along with Mary who was engaged to him and was with child shocking while they were there the days were completed for her to give birth and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in cloths laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn in the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the field and keeping watch over their flock by night and an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terribly frightened but the angel said to them do not be afraid for behold I bring you good news of great joy which will be for all the people for today in the city of David there has been born for you a savior who is Christ the Lord this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. War and peace. Big names and a little baby. War tends to come from men Peace comes 
from Jesus. The King of kings and Lord of lords, the one named king in history worth remembering, worth knowing, worth worshiping is Jesus Christ. It's not cheddar cheese. It's the one that matters. The king we worship. And that king, by the way, said in Matthew 24, verse 6, you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not frightened, for those things must take place. But that is not yet the end. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And it's been going on since Genesis 14. He says, in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. So these are, these are the beginnings of birth pangs. In Luke 21, 27, he says, Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. But when these things begin to take place, straighten up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Fruchtenbaum quotes the Midrash Rabbah, so Jewish commentary, which says, quote, when you see the powers fighting each other, look for the footsteps of King Messiah. Now, that's commentary on Genesis 14. That's very interesting to me. See, people can have insight and sometimes not even know what their insight is talking about. It is Jewish commentators who made that statement. Listen to it again. When you see the powers fighting each other, look for the footsteps of the King Messiah. And that's what Jesus said. Nation's going to rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. You'll be hearing wars and rumors of wars. Man, keep your eyes open. Don't be looking to the kings who are fighting these battles on earth. You keep your eyes open for the king, Messiah. He's coming, and I wonder if we might see the footsteps of King Messiah in the story before us tonight. When the first war that we're told of, at least, takes place. Verse 10. Now the valley of Sidim was full of tar pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, and they fell into them. But those who survived fled to the hill country. And then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food supply and departed, and they also took ibuprofen. <laughs> that reads really well there. They also took Lot. They took Lot. I called him ibuprofen. You were, okay, you remember that. They also took Lot, headache, Abram's nephew and his possessions and departed for he was living in Sodom. Note there's a slight change. I think it's significant. But in the text, if you look back when Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan, that's chapter 13, verse 11. Lot journeyed eastward, and they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled in the cities of the valley and moved his tents as far as Sodom. Well, now from where he first settled as far as Sodom, he has actually moved into Sodom. He's living in Sodom. And the next time we're going to see Lot back in Sodom after the intrigue of, of this warfare, when he's back in Sodom, the next time we see him, he'll be sitting in the gate. Which I will remind you when we get to that study, to be sitting in the city gate means that you're part of the city council. You're one of the judges. It's very likely Lot even had found himself in leadership in Sodom. Whatever was going on there at this point, Lot chose the best land moving down to Sodom. And when he did, I guarantee you, he had no idea what was coming. He did not know war was coming his way. 
But here's the thing. If you settle in the world, if you settle for the world, if you make a home with evil and wickedness is your company, you will be captured. Just like Lot was captured, you will be captured. I want you to think of Paul put an interesting contrast out there. And as I thought about it, this portrays to me Abram and Lot in a pretty significant way. Second Timothy chapter two, verse 24, he says, the Lord's bondservant, who we know is Abram as we're walking through the story, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, and with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, that perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. Who was gentle in Genesis 13? Who was wise in his you know, understanding and, and in his work with Lot, who was not quarrelsome, who said, let's not strive. It was Abram. So that's a really good description of him. But then there's a good description of Lot, as Paul says in 2 Timothy 2, 26, and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. That's what happened to Lot. He ended up captive, kidnapped, hauled off, as these kings came conquering down all the way down and into the land of Sodom. And I'm sure Lot, at first, when he moved near Sodom, I can handle near Sodom. When he moved into Sodom, I can deal with, I know it's wicked. Lot was a righteous man. Remember that. He was a righteous man. I can handle wicked. I can deal. You know, it's not that big a deal. I don't hear the language all around me. I'm not engaging in the immorality that I see. I, I can handle the wicked. All you got to do is you lock the doors, you turn off the light, right? You hide under your pillow at night, you're fine. Lot couldn't handle the wicked. War and capture found him and took him away. They dragged Lot from there all the way north up to, we'll find out in verse 14 here, all the way to Dan. Okay, it wasn't called Dan yet. It would be called Dan. Ultimately, it would become territory of Dan, but this is the far north. Verse 13, a fugitive came and told Abram the Hebrew. Now, he was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and the brother of Aner, and these were allies with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he let out his trained men, born in his house, 318, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Now, again, Dan was the later name. But you might want to jot down in the margins of your Bible, there was another name for this place, this, this city. It was called Laish, L-A-I-S-H, Laish. It was the original city of Laish. Remember, if you were here, you may have heard me mention this recently, I think on Sunday even, the ancient archway that we call Abraham's Gate. It's not Abraham's Gate. It was a Canaanite gate. It's in northern Israel. It's still there to this day. Archaeology has, has uncovered it. It is the gate into the city of Laish. That's the city. That's the place that Lot was taken to. And so when we're there, we like to point that out to say, as you're looking at this gate, 4,000 years ago, Abraham would have walked through this gate because that's where Abram had, Abram had to go to rescue Lot, the gate of Laish. Or as we're told here in our scriptures, Dan. Why does it say Dan instead of Laish if it wasn't Dan at the time? Well, because Moses is writing this. He's writing prophetically. There may have also been others who got a hold of Genesis. Perhaps Joshua, it's suggested, because he would have known about 
the later date. And it may, that name, that new name may have been inserted so the Jewish people would go, oh yeah, Dan, that's up in the north. They'd recognize it. Abram heads off. So Lot has, you know, moved down to Sodom. Now he's captured in this unexpected war. He's hauled all the way to the north of what would be the land of Israel. It's the land of Canaan. He's up there in Laish. He's captured, and Abram goes after him. Takes a crack squad of 318 servants. Listen, these were trained servants, and the implication is they were trained militarily. This was Abram's security force. What would Abram need a security force for? Well, it's believed that Abram had over a thousand servants and flocks and herds, incredible wealth. He was like his own little city state moving up and down the land of Canaan. If you have a picture in your mind of Abram walking the land of Canaan by himself out among the hills, no, 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 no. Abram and a thousand servants and all the flocks and herds, you know, moving around the land. The earth quaking. Here comes Abram and his entourage. So a thousand servants, so 318 were specifically his, well, his security force. And they head up to Laish. And Abram there pulls off a brilliant defeat of the cheddar cheese coalition. Look at verse 15. He divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them as far as Chobah, which is north of Damascus. He brought back all the goods. He brought back his relative Lot with his possessions and also the women and the people. Man, when God is on your side, all the world's kings and rulers are cheesy. They just don't have it. They are not the power to fear when God is on your side. And bring it a little closer to home. What's going on that's terrifying right now? What's going on either in your personal life or in your reach or in our community or in this state or in our country that you look at it and you go, oh man, man, this, isn't, this does not look good. I'm worried about this. Hey, God's on your side. You serve King Jesus. If you belong to him, if you're one of his followers, you have nothing to fear, nothing to worry about. But now the story gets really intriguing. We will quickly forget the Cheddar Cheese Coalition and all these names and all these people. Suddenly, in verse 17, something amazing happens. After his return from the defeat of Cheddar Lamar and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him, that is to meet Abram, at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was priest of God Most High. Uh, Melchizedek. Melchizedek. It means king of righteousness. And he was king of Salem. This is the first time we see Jerusalem mentioned in the Bible. Salem. So he's Melchizedek, king of righteousness, king of Salem, which means peace. And he comes out bringing bread and wine. What? And he blessed him. That is Melchizedek, 
blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. I just want to point out to you, Melchizedek was not in the war. He's the king of peace. He wasn't part of this war. He comes out after the fact. Blesses God Most High. He is a king and a priest. That's not okay. Not in Mosaic law, which obviously comes later. And he comes out blessing God. And verse 20 ends, and he gave him a tenth of all. And we understand this more clearly from Hebrews chapter 7. Abram gave Melchizedek a tithe of all the spoils of war. Verse 21 continues, the king of Sodom said to Abram, give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything else that is yours for fear you would say I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing except the young men, what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me, Anir and Eshkol and Mamre, let them take their share. Verse 20 is the first mention of tithing in the Bible. That's interesting because that's pre-law. has nothing to do with law. So those who, who say, well, tithing is a Jewish law thing. No. No, it predates the law and it postdates the law because Jesus is going to talk about it as well. I find that interesting, just throwing that out to you. But put this together. We've got tithing. We've got bread and wine. We've got worship of God most high. Sounds like church. This sounds like a Sunday morning at the bridge. I read this and it's impressive to me. And boy, for 2,000 years, actually much longer than that, but in the church and in Christian circles, people have said, who is this Melchizedek? And what actually just happened here after the war of kings as this king of righteousness, king of peace comes out from Salem not drawn into the great big war of the kings. And I'm going to leave you with this thought on this thing. That from cheddar cheese to bread and wine, you've got something to chew on. So you can do that until Sunday because we're going to come back and look more closely and think again about Melchizedek. Some of you know exactly who Melchizedek is. Some of you have questions. Some of you have heard me talk about Melchizedek in the past and you've said there's no way that that's the case. So we'll look at it. We'll take some time Sunday and think it through. Chapter 15, verse 1. I'm only going to do seven chapters tonight. (laughs) After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Huh. Now, the Bible is not a book of a collection of random thoughts and statements and comments and you know, that have nothing to do with each other. It's very, very consistent. And as we come into chapter 15, God appears to Abram and says, do not fear. Why? I think Abram is suffering from PTSD. And I mean no, no joke about that. Those of you are, you know, in the Navy, if you've been in war, if you've been in battle situations, if you've been in tough things, you know how it affects you. You know the impact it can have, and you know that you can come home and be in a completely safe location and, and have, you know, tremors of fear 
from what you experienced. And while you were experiencing it, you handled it because that's what you were trained to do. But when you come home and everything's okay and everything's safe, it comes back. And fear rises up. And I think that's what's going on with Abram. He leads this amazing rescue. He goes up against the four kings who had just decimated all the way down to to Sodom and back north, wiping out everything in their path. And (laughs) Abram sneaks in there and divides up his men and by darkness of night rescues Lot, gets everything back. And now he's back there and he is trembling. What did I do? (laughs) While he was doing it, he was focused. But now after the fact, I don't know, maybe he's worried about retaliation. Oh, no. I got Lot out, but this is not good. He may just be shaking from the experience finally hitting home. Either way, whatever's going on, note this, God knows his heart. I love this about, what does this tell you about God? That he comes to Abram and the first thing out of his mouth is don't be afraid. He's reading Abram like a book. You know he does that with you. Do you think he's not aware of how you're feeling? When fear rises up, when uncertainty or doubt, when worry is impressing, you don't think that God's not reading you like a book? He knows your heart. Watch this. Verse 1 again starts, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. How is that possible? How many of you have seen a word? I'm not talking about reading in a book. But don't we normally hear words? But here it says, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. And in all history, I am only aware of one word that ever appeared and spoke. John 1 verse 1, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. John 1, 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And this is the only time where we are explicitly told that the word came to Abram in a vision. The whole sentence doesn't work unless the word is Jesus Christ. He's the only one in Scripture, by the way, who's called the word. He is the word, the word incarnate, the word in flesh, God among us the exact representation of his nature. And in these seven revelations of God to Abram, I believe more than once, this is Rick's personal belief. You don't have to agree with me. It's fine. But I believe more than once, Abram was staring face to face with Jesus. The word came to him in a vision and spoke to him. And he says, do not fear Abram. So, so let me ask you, back to this idea of, of fear and the reading of the heart. What are you afraid of? What are you afraid of this week? Now, now really think about that because you might say, well, I'm not afraid of anything. Okay, what's got you worried? What concerns you right now? What wakes you up in the middle of the night? What doesn't let you go to sleep at all? What are you worried about? I, I, I'll give you one of mine. Please pray about this. There's a meeting in Ghana on December 23rd to match Christopher to our family. And if that happens, it's been put off many times. If it happens, the ball is rolling. And it's what we've been praying for. 
I'm not afraid because I know God's in this, but I have been afraid over the last week or two that this meeting was not going to happen. What are you afraid of? What right now is your fear that God would address and think about this with me? How many times has God or one of his messengers said, do not fear in the Bible? 58 times. There are 58 statements of do not fear by either God or Jesus or one of his angelic messengers in Scripture. 58. Do not fear. And then do not be afraid is spoken another 46 times just in case you miss do not fear. Over and over and over in the Bible. And the question is when will we stop fearing? When will we stop fearing invaders or attackers or forces beyond our control? Guess what? Your life is beyond your control. My life is out of my... I, I, we have the illusion of control from time to time. We think we got it. Things settle down and quiet down. I, I, I got, everything's good. I can handle this now. And it's an illusion. We are never in control. And when things become clear to us and we start to fear and we start to worry and dread and doubt comes in. Jesus said, John 14, 1, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. Do not fear. You have a place. Being prepared. It'll be ready when we go. Jesus is working on that. He says in John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Do not fear. Abram, do not be afraid. Rick, do not fear. Less. God's got it. Don't be afraid. Man, if you're like me, and I hope you're not, <laughs> you need to hear this over and over and over and over. Do not fear. I'm so thankful he said it 58 times. Because I need to hear all 58, and then I'm going to go back to the beginning and read it again. Because as I hear Jesus say, do not fear, fear disappears. When I hear him, when I trust him, Fear goes away. And by the way, Genesis 15, verse 1, is the very first do not fear in the Bible. So another amazing first mention, do not fear. Do not fear. Whatever Abram was fearing, whether it was a PTSD type thing or coming off of his meeting now with the king of Sodom. By the way, quick side note, you might note that the king of Sodom fell into the tar pits in the valley of Sidim. You don't fall into a tar pit and live. So how's the king of Sodom come out and meet him here? Well, this is now the next guy. This is the vice president who's now taken over the presidency because the president's dead, okay? So it's just the next king who's stepped right up and, and now, but he's coming out of Sodom. So I don't know what all's going on for Abram that has him so fearful, but he is afraid. God reads him. God says, I got you. Do not fear. First time in the Bible. What's the last do not fear? Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, in a message from Jesus to his church, he says, do not fear what you're about to suffer. 
Behold, the devil's about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you'll have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. Do not fear. In another place, and I love it, that Jesus says, don't fear those who can just, you know, kill the body. <laughs> Isn't that exactly what people fear? Things that will kill the body? Phone call comes, it's cancer. <gasps> fear. Jesus, don't fear that. Phone call comes, there's a heart issue. <gasps> don't fear that. Worst case scenario, you're dead. <laughs> the marvelous thing about the wonder of God and following Jesus is even something as terrifying and fearful for us as death. He says, don't worry about it. Don't fear those who can kill the body. Fear the one who can throw the soul into eternal damnation. That's someone to be afraid of. There's your fear. Don't fear these things. Just be faithful. Be faithful until death. I'll give you the crown of life. Trust me, Jesus says. Hold fast to me, and even death can't win. By the way, I was thinking about this today. Total side note, but I got to share. What does Jesus say? He says, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And we always try to think, what does that mean? Or the gates of Hades, well, gates don't attack. Gates don't prevail. Are we attacking the gates of Hades? Is that what we're, so, so the gates of Hades won't win as we attack? The, no, listen, get this. If you die in Christ, the gates of Hades cannot keep you in. Gates of Hades cannot prevail over those who have faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, thanks to Jesus, if you die in faith in Jesus, you don't even go there at all. You go straight home to be with the Lord. So, do not fear, Abram, God says, the Word says. And then he says, I am a shield to you. Literally, I am your shield. Is there a stronger defense anywhere? Then God is your shield. If you know he's your shield, what, what better is that, really? What stronger tower of defense do we have? Isaiah 41, verse 10, he says, Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not look anxiously about you. I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. So do not fear, Abram. I am your shield. And then he goes on to say, well, NASB says your reward shall be very great, but literally it's your exceeding great reward. I am your shield and I am your exceeding reward. Turning your Bibles over just for a moment to Psalm 16. Psalm 16. Watch this. Psalm 16, verse 5. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. Not like Abraham's lot. <laughs> Different lot. You support my life. You support my livelihood. You support everything that's going to happen to me. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance. God says, I'm your exceeding great reward. I love that my inheritance is not something that God gives me. It's God. It's not something he offers me down the road. It's him. Jesus isn't saying, hey, I'm going to give you a reward. And by the way, he's going to. In fact, Revelation twenty two twelve. 12 
I'm coming quickly. My reward is with me to do render to every man according to what he's done. So there are gifts. There are rewards as indicated by Jesus. But he's the reward. He's the exceeding great reward. Verse 6 says the lines or the boundary lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. And indeed my heritage is beautiful to me. What is my heritage? It's the Lord. What's my inheritance? It's Jesus. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set the Lord continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. My glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. Note that because remember, he's your shield and your reward. You're secure in him. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life. And in your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. I'm your reward. Psalm 142 verse 5, I cried out to you, O Lord. I said, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. See, I like that. He's not just your reward in the afterlife. You understand that if you walk with Jesus, he is your reward right now. That his presence is the greatest blessing in our lives today in this moment. He's my shield. He's got me covered, protected, and he's my reward by his presence. Now, Abram. Abram sees the word in this vision. He's already had some stunning encounters with God. And yet he's not consoled. He, he turns around in verse 2 and says, Oh, Lord God, what will you give me? You know, what is this reward? He's just said, I'm your reward. What will you give me? <laughs> what will you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. And truly that was custom. You didn't have a child, your lead servant, your main guy, he becomes the heir. He gets the inheritance. That's how it would work. So Abram now turns around to God. He sees him in a vision. And I love the fact, and I think the Bible has to leave a few things out, like Abram's reaction in the first place. By the way, that's another reason possibly why God said, do, do not fear, because he showed up. Do not fear. Many times that's why the angels have to say, or Jesus has to say, do not fear, because he shows up and it just freaks people out. But he's there, and, and Abram sees him, and now he begins to question him. And some say, oh no, Abram's faith is gone. This is pure doubt, and I disagree. I call these the honest questions of a good friend. I love that Abram is talking to God, and he's sharing his heart you know what doubt is? Doubt is when I hang my head and I begin to question God in and of myself. Or when I go to another person and together we're questioning God. That's doubt. Asking God directly? That's not doubt. Oh, Lord. Boy, I've just been waiting to hear from you and I'm not hearing from you this. And I'm, am I missing something? And I've had people come to me and say, I've been praying and talking to God, but I feel like I'm doubting. Not if you're talking to him. You know, how can you be doubting when you're talking to the one that you're afraid that you're doubting? And so Abram, is, he's talking to God in this marvelous relationship. It's the honest question of Abram, the friend of God. He's saying, I, I hear what you say. 
And, and I remember what you said, that my descendants would have all this land. I, I hear you, Lord, but, but the only heir I've got right now is my lead servant, Eliezer. Fair question. You say I'm going to have my descendants, my seed, but that, is, that what you, is that what you mean? Listen, it's okay to ask the Lord how it's going to work. How's this going to come together? I don't know. When you start to feel led by the Lord, when you start to see him doing something in your life, and, and you say, I have no idea how this is going to work. Fair question. It's not going to upset God for you to ask him. Just don't go off asking other people. Ask him. Take it to the Lord. He's not offended by heartfelt questions, especially asked in faith. By the way, Eliezer, just note this. It's going to have impact and import later in the story of Abram's life. Eliezer of Damascus. Eliezer means God my helper. God my helper. El, God, Eliezer. It's my helper. John 14, 16, I will ask the Father. He will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. And the Hebrew for helper, Eliezer. John 15, 26, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that's the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he'll testify about me, Jesus says. John 16, 7, I tell you the truth, it's your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. Now you might ask, okay, Eliezer, that's interesting, but what's the helper, what's the Holy Spirit got to do with Abram's servant? And we will see this again later in the story. But I point this out just to say to you, it's really funny to me, but the answer to Abram's question is in his question. Who have I got except Eliezer? Exactly. Who do you have except the Spirit of God? I'm not saying Eliezer here is the Spirit of God, but the picture for you and for me is when we say, who do we have we're not seeing things fulfilled. How do we move forward? What do we do? Guess what? We have the spirit of the living God. We have the Eliezer. We have God, my helper. What else do we need? The Lord is my helper. And God here is so patient and so gracious. Verse 4, then behold, the word of the Lord came to him. How does a word come to you? You know, and we're still talking. I believe a Christophany. It came to him saying, this man will not be your heir, but one will come forth from your own body, and he shall be your heir. This tickles me because if this is Jesus talking to Abram, he just mentioned himself. <laughs> one who's going to come from your body will be your heir. And he took him outside, verse 5, and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. What did Abram do with that? He believed him. He believed the Lord, and he reckoned it, that as God reckoned it to him as righteousness, and that's a big deal. It's a much bigger deal than any of the battles or any of the kings who were named. The big deal is we finally now fully see how God reckons righteousness. How does a person become righteous? Where does righteousness come from? He believed him. He just believed God. Romans 4, verse 3, what does the Scripture say? Abram believed God, and it was credited to him, reckoned to him as righteousness. Paul says, now, to the one who works, 
His wage is not credited as a favor. It's what is due to him. But the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Paul takes this example of Abram just believing God and says that's why he's called righteous. Genesis tells us that. Paul repeats it in Romans 4. Paul repeats it in Galatians chapter 3. You can study that as well. Romans 4, Galatians 3, and Genesis 15. Okay, all ping together off this whole issue that righteousness comes by faith. Righteousness in the Hebrew is siddikah. And siddikah, I love the translation, is literally rightly clothed. You got the right clothes on when you're trusting God. You're dressed, you're covered, you're ready for the feast, you're ready for the wedding. You are rightly clothed. Isaiah says, Isaiah 61 verse 10, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He's wrapped me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and a bride adorns herself with jewels. I am rightly clothed when I simply trust God. And that's what Abram's doing. Verse 7, and he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. Note this in your Bibles, the word possess is inherit. I gave you this land. This is your inheritance, Abram. And he said, O Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? (laughs) How many times has God been asked the same question? I believe, Lord, that you're going to do this. How? And what proof can you give me? We'll see it in the story of Gideon. I love Gideon because he's the one who puts out the fleece. You know? O Lord, if what you're telling me is true... Please put dew on the fleece, but nowhere else. The next morning, the fleece is soaking wet. Lord, let me just ask you one more time. Uh, This time, put dew everywhere, but not on the fleece. And I may have gotten those two reversed, but the idea is the same. And God did it. And I think that if we ask the Lord, I'm not talking about faithlessly saying, prove yourself, but I think sometimes we can say, Lord, can you give me some confirmation Man, the first year of this church fellowship was a year of confirmation after confirmation after confirmation for me. And I kept asking. I had a Gideon spirit at the time. That's where I was at. Lord, can you just, are you sure? Is this what you want? Can you just one more time just, I don't know, do something? (laughs) Man, he just kept doing stuff. The confirmation of the Lord. And and Abram's asking for this. How can I know? How may I know? Abram asked God. Isaac will ask him. Jacob will ask him. Moses, Joshua, the judges, Samuel, David, the kings, the prophets, the apostles, you, me. We're always asking God, how can we know? And I think God loves it. I really do. If we're asking him. We're just going to him and saying, Lord, I... I believe you. I want to trust you. I just need a little help here. And what's beautiful about this conversation and the difference between chapter 15 and chapter 13. Chapter 13, Abram sees a problem. There's famine in the land and he comes up with his own solution and goes down to Egypt. Chapter 15, Abram's struggling and what does he do? He talks to God about it. He takes it to the Lord. He's in communication and communion seeking confirmation from the Father. 
Now, what about us today when we say, Lord, could you just give me a little more confirmation? Can you, can you help me out here? Listen, here's what's different between Abram and you and me today. We have 6,000 years of his story working for us. We've seen confirmation. We've seen how the Lord deals with people and how he answers prayer. We've had this proof of his faithfulness, not to mention that as followers of Jesus Christ right now, we have the blessing of his Holy Spirit residing in us. And we have his word. His word fulfilled. His promises. We see promises in the word that are fulfilled. We see promises in the word that are to come. And do you remember this? Do you remember what Jesus said that Abraham said? This is significant. Jesus quotes Abraham in Luke chapter 16. He begins giving an account, not a parable. Never says it's a parable. Unlike any of the parables in this account, he names people in the account. And Abraham is one of them. It's that account of the rich man and Lazarus. And Jesus says this poor man Lazarus died. And at the same time, a rich man who had amassed great wealth for himself, he died. And Lazarus went to the paradise side of Hades. And the rich man went to torment. And the rich man looked across a great gulf and he saw, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he saw Lazarus in the bosom of Abraham being comforted. Abraham's on the paradise side. Rich man's on the torment side. He calls across, hey, would you send Lazarus to, to dip his finger in water and, 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 and cool my tongue? And Abram says, I, we can't cross this gulf. There's no going from where we are to where you are and vice versa. And so the rich man says, hey, then, then send somebody back to my father and my brothers to tell them, to warn them about where I am. Send somebody back. And Jesus says that Abraham said, Luke 16, 29, will they have Moses and the prophets? Let them hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And Abraham said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. What are you saying, Rick? I'm saying that God has spent all of history building an ironclad case for our faith so that we can trust him now. Ask him for confirmation? Sure, go ahead. But look at the confirmation in front of you. Go to the word of God. Go to Moses and the prophets as we're even doing right now tonight. Go to the word. Listen to the word. What does it tell us? God is faithful. I am your shield. I am your exceedingly great reward. I got you. I am here with you. And with Abram, he does this amazing thing. Absolutely astounding. Because Abram didn't have the word. Abram didn't go to church. There was no church. There was no synagogue. There was no gathering of people. It was just Abram and God. And those that Abram told. So what does he do? God the creator of all the universe comes down to this puny guy, interacts with him, and does something remarkable. Verse 9. He said to him, after Abram says, How do I know? Bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. These are all animals ultimately of sacrifice. Verse 10. Well, then he brought all these to him and cut them in two 
and laid each half opposite the other. What do you think happened when he laid each half opposite the other? What do you think was in between? Take a wild guess. Yeah, blood. This would be a bloody mess. You're going to cut an animal in half, put one half here and one half there, you're left with a pool of blood. Probably a lot. And then he did that with all three of the, of the larger animals, the, the heifer and the goat and the ram. And with the turtle dove, he sacrifices those, but the turtle dove and the pigeon, he doesn't cut them in half. But he lays them aside. And it's interesting, he did not cut the birds, verse 10 says. Why? Well, in Leviticus 1.17, the birds were offered whole. So he didn't cut the little birds in half, which I think is nice, yeah, for the birds. What's going on here? What we read happening is explained in verse 18. If you just glance down there, the first sentence of verse 18, on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram. So what we're seeing graphically displayed in verses 9 and 10 is God is cutting covenant with Abraham. It's called the Abrahamic covenant. It's one of many, and we, we shared a few teachings ago the, the covenants of Scripture that God lays out. And we're going to come back and look at those again another time. But in the Abrahamic covenant, so we see this word covenant. Second time we've seen the word, we saw God make a covenant with Noah. Now he's making the covenant with Abram, and it's berit in the Hebrew, and it means an alliance or a pledge, but the root word means to cut, like you would cut food. So covenant, you would cut covenant, which is why they cut the animals in two. You cut the animals in two, you create this path of blood, and if you've heard this before, you know. And then the two parties would walk together, they would walk the path of blood, signifying we are in a solemn agreement here. We are confirming that you and I are in this together. I agree with you, you agree with me. I will do my part, you do your part. We're going to walk the path of blood together and signify we are in now a solemn covenant. And so Abram does this. He knows what he's doing. This, this was customary. So he understood. God is working with the custom of the times to help Abram understand how he was going to follow through. So Abram, oh, oh, yeah, oh, I see what you're doing. He cuts the animals, sets them apart, path of blood, and Abram prepares to walk the path with God. Verse 11, the birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, and Abram drove them away, which was probably fun. Isn't that the way of it? Isn't that what happens? God begins to move in your life, and birds of prey show up. Foes, irritants, invaders, demonic forces, naysayers, and they try to discourage faith. God is moving to increase Abram's faith, to assure Abram's faith, and here come the birds of prey. It happens all the time. What do you do? Well, just do what Abram did. Drive the doubt away. Drive away. Don't let the birds land and pick at the promises of God. Don't let the naysayer say to you, ah, you're crazy, you're out of your mind. Don't let the demons discourage. Drive it away. By the way, it's one of the ways that you know his Holy Spirit is at work in you, and that's when the doubts come, when you just drive them away. How do I, how do, I do that practically? Simply choose to believe. I am your shield. I am your reward. That's me. Trust me. And the more I trust God the more I drive the doubt away. Those foul demons of doubt. Luke 11, verse 20, 
Jesus said, but if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Doesn't take much to drive away demons. Really, all it takes is the name of Jesus. Call on Jesus. Trust in Jesus. When you feel doubts rise or when you see doubts coming down, drive it away by trusting and calling upon the name of Jesus. Verse 12, so Abram's fighting away the birds. And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, terror and great darkness. That word terror can also be translated dread. <laughs> the sense of foreboding and dread and heaviness and darkness fell upon him. Why? Listen, this is part of the vision. First of all, when, when God shows up, we're all going to shake. You know, we will shake with, with joy, but there's, there's a dread in the fear of the Lord. Not, not a negative, but just a, he's awesome. And so you could attribute some of this to that. But understand, as this vision comes and what God is about to share with Abram, a time of dread and darkness was ahead for the seed of Abraham. A time of great terror was going to happen. The sun is going to set on his offspring's comfort and night will fall into their slavery. Verse 13, God said to Abram, know for certain your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. And I think that as God is giving this prophecy, Abram is feeling it. My kids are going into slavery. The dread is real because what's about to take place for the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that is Israel, is a dreadful thing, a horrible thing. Abram's feeling it. They'll be enslaved, oppressed for 400 years, but I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace you will be buried at a good old age. And then in the fourth generation, they will return here for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. This is huge. Why did the children of Israel go to Egypt out of the land of Canaan, promised to Abram, why did they go to Egypt and there reside for 400 years? As verse 16 again tells us. In the fourth generation, they'll return here. For the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. That's why. God needed to move his children out of the land. God needed to give the Amorites full run, full freedom to do their thing. The Amorite, by the way, here is indicative of all the Canaanites. It's, it's portraying all of those people living in the land, the Canaanite people. And the truth is, their sin was not yet full. Sin of the Amorite was not yet complete. This is such a strange sentence in the Bible. Their sin, it hasn't filled up the cup of sin yet. Well, what sin? Listen, we know this from historical record. We know it from archaeological record. Idolatry was common throughout the land of Canaan. We have found places of, of idolatry in Israel. Child sacrifice was part of the whole deal. It was for a long time. And I'm not even going to describe it. Maybe further into our studies, we'll talk again about what the child, the sacrifice of infants actually looked like. It wasn't just the slaying of a baby, which would be bad enough. It was horrific. And it was rampant. 
And it's what you did to appease the gods. It's what you did to be sure your business succeeded. It's what you did so that your life could move forward. You sacrificed a child. I think people are still doing that today. Pedophilia, rampant. Sexual depravity was cultural. (laughs) It's what people did. We know, again, more than we want to know about this people. But Paul said something that I think completely applies both then and now. Romans 1.28, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. And then Paul lists some things. Being filled with all unrighteousness and wickedness and greed and evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, ouch, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. And that was Canaan's land. And there are days where I think that's America's land. But the sin of Canaan, listen, what God's saying is they need to go into the land 400 years because the sin of Canaan isn't as bad as it's going to get. Listen, it's not that God wanted the sin to get worse. Don't misunderstand him here. But the God of Abram is so gracious that rather than storming in and just wiping them all out, he put judgment on hold for 400 years. He waited. He could have judged them right then and there, wiped them out, and Abram could have just settled in the land and it was done. But you know what? Mark this down. God loved the Canaanite. God loved the Amorite and the Hittite and the Hivite. He loves people. That's what God does. And so as bad as they were, I'm going to give them 400 years. Yeah, but Lord, by your own word, they're just going to get worse. Yeah. Yeah, they will. But I'm going to give them time anyway. I will give them every opportunity to repent and to turn. And this is amazing grace. This is God at work in full broad daylight of their sin and corruption. God was patient. Aren't you glad? Because some of you would not even be here tonight if God had not been patient. Some of us never would have had a chance if God hadn't patiently said, I'll wait for you. I'm going to get you there. I will wait patiently. And so he waits. And as we've already seen, God visits every generation. 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow about his promises. Some count slowness, but he's patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, Canaanites included, but for all to come to repentance. Yeah, but Rick, we know history. They didn't come to repentance. Doesn't change the fact that God patiently waited for them to. Gave them every opportunity to. Now, quickly, let me ask you something. How many years would Abram's descendants be in Egypt? It's an easy question. How many years would they be there? 400 years. And in what generation, another easy question, in what generation would they then return? The fourth. Okay. They'll be there 400 years, and in the fourth generation, they will return. That gives us a generational standard in the Bible of 100 years, right? If they come in the fourth generation, they're going to be 400 years, so a generation, according to this, 
about 100 years. Now, learn the parable from the fig tree. Matthew 24, 32. Oh, Rick, you're going to read that again? Yes, I am. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. You know, too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near right at the door. Okay, so the parable of the fig tree. The fig tree is Israel. We talked about this Sunday, and I know we've talked about it about 400 times in the last decade. So important. Parable of the fig tree. When its branch is tender, the fig tree Israel reemerges miraculously as a nation in 1948. And Jesus said, Matthew 24, 34, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Isaiah 66, verse 8, who has heard such a thing? Who's seen such things? Can a land be born in a day? Can a nation be brought forth all at once? Yes, it can. May 14th, 1948. And by the way, the prophecy went further than that. As soon as Zion travailed, think Holocaust, she also brought forth her sons, the birth of modern Israel. Shall I bring to the point of birth, God says, and not give delivery? Shall I, who gives delivery, shut the womb, says your God? Now listen, here's my point. If by this generation, Jesus means those alive... When the fig tree's branch has become tender, and if the fig tree is indeed Israel putting forth its leaves in 1948, and if a generation is a hundred years, do the math. 1948 plus a hundred years. Wait, 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 wait. Okay, so, so Pastor Rick, you're saying he's coming in, in, in 2048? No. No, you miscalculated somewhere. I think he's coming way sooner than that. But I find it interesting and intriguing, and I am not, stay with me here for just a moment, I'm not putting a date on here for you. I am saying that by biblical standards, if if Jesus, when he said a generation, is referring to a, a generation of time as the Bible views it, and that goes up to 100 years, and Israel put forth its leaves in, 20, in 1948, 100 years later is 2048, which means sometime in there, Jesus comes. You really think that, Rick? I hope that. I live for that. What if 2049 comes? Then Happy New Year. I'm not concerned. <laughs> I'm not worried about it, but I'm just telling you there is a mentality in Scripture that we are called to, and it's a mentality of the imminency of the return of Jesus. And it's not to say, well, I've got till 2048. No, think it through with me uh, way sooner. For one thing, we're on the, the edge of 2020. What if he comes in 2048? That means we've got 28 years, folks. That's no time at all. But, but wait, wait, subtract seven years because the last seven years are the tribulation and that leaves us, we only have 21 years. But wait, we don't even know how much time will pass between when the church is raptured and when the tribulation begins because the two are not connected. The rapture is not the beginning of the tribulation. The rapture is going to happen and at some point after that, there's going to be a signing of a covenant between Antichrist and Israel. If you haven't heard this stuff, go back and listen through the Revelation study. 
At some point after that, how, how long after that? I don't know. How much time passes between the rapture and the tribulation? Listen, what I'm saying is 2048 can't even be the year of Christ's return. You'd have to back it off seven years and perhaps more years than that depending on the rapture. We're in overtime, folks. He could come at any time. We are called not to be afraid. Listen again, do not be afraid. Do not fear. Just be ready. We're called to live ready because the next thing on God's prophetic calendar is fantastic. Talk about a wonder. And I guarantee you, fellow servants of Jesus, if you're walking this walk with him and it puts a little fear in your heart to think, whoa, I mean, what if, what if tonight Jesus called us home? What if this is it? Boom, we're out of here. Uh, I, <laughs> I still have stuff to do. But what about those things that I... Listen, I guarantee you this. You go home to be with Jesus tonight, you will not look back. You will not say, oh, man, miss Christmas. <laughs> now I will never know what they were hiding in the back room. You're not going to miss it. I guarantee it. But I've never been married. You won't miss it. I have a good marriage. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> but I never got to, well, what about the... And it, you're not, don't worry about it. Don't fear. Just be ready. Amen. Just long for his appearing. Amen. He's coming, and he comes quickly. And Jesus is the one who said, be on the alert. You do not know the day which your Lord is coming. So God tells Abram after 400 years, they're going to come back here. Verse 18. Continue, no, yeah. Yeah, skip verse 17. Verse 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenite, and the Kenizzite, and the Cabanite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Rephaim. I could do other I, jokes. I won't do that tonight. The Amorite, the Canaanite, the Girgashite, and the Jebusite. And he lists out their ten nations. There's a representation there. Ten nations listed. Ten reminds us of the Ten Commandments. It reminds us of the law of God. It reminds us of God's absolute word. And what he's saying is, I am giving this to you, Abram, absolutely. Understand this. What he describes here from the river of Egypt, the Nile River, to the great river, the river Euphrates. All you got to do, you can look at the back of your Bible if you want. Look at a map. Look at the space between the Nile and the Euphrates. This is God's promise to Israel. And I've said this over and over, but I'm going to say it again in case anybody missed it. At the height of Solomon's kingdom, Israel occupied or held 30,000 square miles. But from the Nile to the Euphrates is over 300,000 square miles that has never been sovereign to Israel. At their greatest, they had 10% of what God promises right here to Abram. This is going to happen. So I want to put it to you this way. Jews who are living on the so-called West Bank are said to be occupying Palestinian land. Guess what? The truth is by these divine property rights, those living in Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, half of Iraq, and part of Egypt are actually occupying Jewish territory. Take that to the U.N., they would love to discuss that. My friends, it's all Jewish land promised by God right here. Now look at verse 17 because this is the really cool thing that happens. 
And it came about when the sun had set that it was very dark. And behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. Understand what just took place. God does this. Abram doesn't. God passes through the pieces. Abram's snoozing. Dreadfully, you know. I mean, it's an overwhelming thing, but he gets this, this, is it a dream? Is it a vision? I don't know. It's kind of both. God shows him what he's doing as he's, as he's over there sleeping. God moves through and comes back. Abram doesn't even meet God halfway. This is what I mean when I say this is a unilateral, unconditional promise of God. This is God's covenant, not Abram's. We call it the Abrahamic covenant. It's a covenant God made to Abram. I'm going to do this. And Abram doesn't even sign off on it. He doesn't walk the path of blood. He doesn't join God in this to say we're now in covenant together. God doesn't let him. You go to sleep. I'll do this. It is my promise to you. And while Abram slept on, watch this. He saw again a smoking oven or furnace and a flaming torch. (laughs) Why? In the Bible, a smoking furnace indicates affliction and wrath. A flaming torch is a picture of the zeal of God and illumination, revelation, if you will. Smoke and fire both would appear in the wilderness as the children of Israel are going through the wilderness. I think part of what's going on is Abram saw what the children of Israel would see, the smoke and the fire. And it passed through the pieces. This is representative of the Shekinah glory of God. But add this in. Don't miss this. Add in the blood. And what do you see? God walks the path of blood alone, and it wouldn't be the last time. God walked the path of blood alone through the dark streets of Jerusalem, but the blood was his pouring out of his back and out of his forehead and dripping down as Jesus walked those streets. He walked alone out to Calvary. And what happened there? Jesus took on himself the full wrath of God. Jesus accomplished salvation by the zeal of the Lord. Jesus did that. You didn't do that. I didn't do that. It was unilateral, unconditional, one-sided. Jesus said, I've got this. Well, what am I supposed to do? Like Abram, believe. Just believe him. He who confesses with his mouth and believes with his heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Like Abraham, we just believe. The Lord cut covenant with Abram, but ultimately... He was pierced through for our transgressions, Isaiah 53. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. You know what? I'd follow that king into any battle. 